So again, keep in mind as we work our way through chapter 11, the first 35 verses, we talked about this, chapter 10, how the angel told Daniel he was going to reveal things to him pertaining to the latter times, the last days, the end times. But the first part of the revelation, the vision that Daniel receives has to do with short-term history happening just several hundred years after his lifetime. So the first 35 verses deal with the not-too-distant future. So I don't want you to get discouraged here and think, wow, I thought this was going to be about the last days. It will be, but not until we get to verse 36 of chapter 11 and then going on into chapter 12 to where we get to the very end. But what I love about this passage, I said it might be a little little dry, a little textbook, more like a history lesson. But what I love about it is it just shows again and confirms the specificity and accuracy of the prophetic passage in God's Word. And that's one of the things that Sorbo pointed out in the, uh, the film yesterday, is that uh, a lot of people, even within the church, choose to avoid, ignore prophecy in the Bible, and yet, between one-fourth and one-third of all Scripture is prophetic in nature. And it's vitally important that we understand it, the importance of it, and how it, again, just confirms that the Holy Scriptures, the Bible, the Old and New Testament, truly are the inspired Word of God. And we can take it all to the bank because God has proved Himself time and time again through prophecy that has been fulfilled in very specific ways and we're going to see some of that today so let's pray father we thank you for this time in your word we do pray that you give us insight and understanding and we could see the importance of this passage even though it may not be quite as uh, exciting or um, interesting perhaps as some other passages we've studied but we know that every cross t and dotted i in your word will not pass away and that uh you put it in there for a reason. So just, we ask you to be with us now and cause your Holy Spirit to impart these truths to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, not everything is chronological in Daniel. Not everything is chronological in Revelation. We're getting into another bit of a flashback here. He says, also, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Now, this would have been by like 534 B.C. Remember after the Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon, Belteshazzar, handwriting on the wall, big drunken orgy party. They all died that night, and the Medes and the Persians conquered them. So Darius in his first year. So Daniel's vision takes place in the third year of Cyrus, but he momentarily takes us back chronologically a couple of years to the beginning of the Persian Empire in order to help with the overall timeline of his vision. And he tells us, with regards to Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. So two of Daniel's many fine character traits, as we've seen over his many years of service under various regimes, under various kings, two of his fine character traits were loyalty and faithfulness, even when serving foreign pagan kings. 
Something to keep in mind. A good example for us, Daniel's loyalty and his faithfulness. And he always honored God in doing so. So this section is called Prophecies Concerning the Nations. And the first nation here, beginning in verse 2, is Persia. Verse 2, Now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. I tell you the truth. Now this, remember, this is the angel speaking to Daniel. God gives these prophecies to Daniel through an angelic messenger. And we have high suspicions that it could be Gabriel. Because Gabriel has fulfilled that role repeatedly of being God's premier messenger, if you will. So three more kings will arise in Persia. Gee, did this come to pass? Absolutely. Cambyses, 530 B.C. to 522. Gamatha, who was also known as Pseudo-Smyrtus. you got to love these ancient names, don't you? He ruled from 522 to 521, just one year, two years. And then Darius I, Histopes, also known as Darius the Great, 521 to 486, referenced in Ezra chapters 5 and 6. So, yes, this prophecy from Daniel, three more kings will arise in Persia. It's exactly what happened. And then the fourth shall be far richer than them all. This was Xerxes, 486 to 465 B.C., who was the richest king of all due to his conquests and severe taxation. And we're told here that Xerxes, by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. So at the height of his power and influence, Xerxes mounted a massive campaign against the Greeks, even enlisting some of their own city-states in the effort. In those days, as you probably know, uh, in various countries... Each city was an entity unto itself. They were called city-states and had their own local rulers. Well, kind of like today, like we would have a mayor, only much more powerful. But he even listed some of their own city-states in the effort to fight against their own people. But he was ultimately defeated, and this resulted in the gradual decline of his power. So that is uh, just a, a nutshell history of the Persian Empire given to us by Daniel from the angel who brought the message from God. And then secondly, Greece, verses 3 and 4. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. A mighty king. This is Alexander the Great, whose rise had been foreshadowed. If you remember the uh, image in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the giant statue, the bronze belly and thighs of Nebuchadnezzar's image. Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold. Then the bronze belly and thighs of Nebuchadnezzar's image were Alexander the Great, the Greek Empire. Chapter 7, verse 6, he's, he's uh, depicted as the winged leopard. And in chapter 8, 5 through 8, the prominent horn of the goat. Between 334... And 330 B.C., just a span of four years, Alexander conquered Asia Minor, Syria, Egypt, and the land of the Medo-Persian Empire, the whole enchilada. 
And his conquests extended as far as India before his death at the age of 32 in 323 B.C., supposedly from malaria with complications from alcoholism. There have been various speculations as to what really happened. Some supposed that he'd been poisoned and so forth, but he died at the height of his power at the age of 32. Verse 4, when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity nor according to his dominion with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. Now we learned back in chapter 8, verse 22, if you remember, the kingdom of Alexander was divided after his death into four parts. He had four generals. It says, not among his posterity or his descendants. In other words, none of his direct descendants would take over the Greek empire that he had established. It was divided between his four uh, generals, Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. Alexander's wife, Roxana, did give birth to a son called Alexander IV. Several months after Alexander's death, the baby was born. But he and his mother were murdered on orders from Cassander. They uh, elected people a little bit differently back then. (laughs) Although we may not be too far away from that now. So that's a brief rundown or overview of the Greek Empire. Then next comes Egypt and Syria, verses 5 through 20. So this next section traces the various struggles between the kings of the south, the Ptolemies of Egypt, and the kings of the north, the Seleucids of Syria. Verse 5, also the king of the south shall become strong as well as one of his princes, And he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. Now, Ptolemy I was one of Alexander's four prime generals. And he ruled Egypt. He fought wars there and power struggles went on for many years. But finally, he was proclaimed king of Egypt in 304 B.C. and held that position until 285. So, almost 20 years, Ptolemy won was the uh, ruler of Egypt. This, of course, was after the time of the pharaohs and so forth. It says, as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. This would be Seleucus I, who was also a general under Alexander. He was below the four. But he was given authority to rule in Babylon in 321 B.C., but in 316 When Babylon came under attack by Antigonus, another general, we may not see it quite the same way, but we still see these power struggles between politicians, don't we? It was interesting, the recent struggle to elect a House Speaker. And I admire the 20 people who were standing up for what they believed in. Ultimately, it did produce some good results. And so we do see these power struggles and uh, they're not always pretty and they're not always right. But it's the way of the world and has been from the beginning. So, Seleucus returned to Babylon uh, after Antigonus' defeat in 312. 
Let me back up. 316, when Babylon came under attack by Antigonus, another general, Seleucus, sought help from Ptolemy I in Egypt. So they all had their own little territories, but they partnered up here. And then after Antigonus' defeat in 312, took four years, Seleucus returned to Babylon greatly strengthened. He ruled over Babylonia, Media, and Syria and assumed the title of king in 305. His kingdom stretched from Israel to India, so as Seleucus I's rule was over far more territory than Ptolemy's was. Verse 6, And at the end of some years they shall join forces for the daughter of the king of the south, Egypt, the Ptolemies, shall go to the king of the north, the Seleucids, to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand. But he shall be given up with those who brought her, and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times. So, after Ptolemy I comes Ptolemy II in Egypt from 285 to 246. Relatively long reign. And then in Syria, Antiochus II, 262 to 246. They were bitter enemies, but finally after some years they entered into an alliance in about 250, that's what this verse is speaking of. Ptolemy II, this is another interesting aspect of all this political intrigue. Ptolemy II gave his daughter Berenice in marriage to Antiochus II, a Seleucid. Remember, Seleucus was one of the other four generals. But Antiochus deserted her. She was eventually murdered by his ex-wife, Laodicea. Laodicea then poisoned Antiochus II and made her son, Seleucus II Callinicus, king. 246 to 227. And that's what Daniel's referring to here. So again, the amazing accuracy of the prophecy is you track it from secular history. And there are those who try to say the Bible is not historically accurate or scientifically accurate, and yet over and over again it turns out the things we learn from secular history, secular science, do nothing but confirm the truth of the Bible. You should be encouraged by that. We talked about Sir Isaac Newton here recently. I find it incredibly encouraging that a, a genius, a mathematical genius, a scientist, a theologian like Isaac Newton, what a tremendous example. For those who try to say that Christians have to be brainwashed in order to believe in God, some of the greatest minds in the history of the world have been firm, strong believers in God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? And the beginning of knowledge. Those who truly have their eyes open see perfectly well how everything we see around us in the natural world points to a supernatural God. Verse 7, But from a branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them and prevail. So Berenice, remember her? Ptolemy II's daughter. Her brother, Ptolemy III, Euergetes, 246 to 221, succeeded his father, Ptolemy II. Ptolemy III succeeded Ptolemy II and set out to avenge the death of his sister, Berenice, murdered by Antiochus' ex-wife, 
Laodicea. He sets out to revenge her death. He was victorious over the Syrian army, the king of the north, put Laodicea to death and returned to Egypt with many spoils. And so that's what verse 7 is referencing here. From a branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north and deal with them and prevail. Now verse 8, he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold, and he shall continue more years than the king of the north. Also, the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. So, Seleucus II Callinicus experienced a humiliating defeat at the hands of Ptolemy III, and he attempted to, because Seleucus, remember, the king of the north, the Seleucids, Israel was part of their domain. This is where Antiochus Epiphanes came from. He attempted to invade Egypt, but he was unsuccessful. So it says, He shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. He failed in that expedition. Verse 10, However, his sons shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. Then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. So after his death by a fall from his horse, Seleucus II Callinicus was succeeded by his son, Seleucus II Soter. <laughs> See, a lot of these, the names of these guys became like titles as they were handed down, like Herod. There was more than one Herod. So when someone rises to prominence like that, and it, like Caesar, it becomes a title which is handed down from one ruler to the next. So Seleucus II Soter, 227 to 223, who was killed by conspirators on a military campaign in Asia Minor, Seleucus III's brother Antiochus III the Great became the ruler in 223 at 18 years of age and reigned for 36 years until 187. We're now getting very close to that time period where Antiochus Epiphanes, as the ruler of the Seleucid kingdom, defiles the temple by sacrificing that pig on the altar. We're only about 20 years away from that now. The two sons, Seleucus III and Antiochus III, had sought to restore Syria's lost prestige by military conquest, the older son by invading Asia Minor, and the younger by attacking Egypt. Egypt had controlled all the territory north of the borders of Syria, which included the land of Israel. Antiochus III succeeded in driving the Egyptians back to the southern borders of Israel in his campaign, 219 through 217. Isn't it interesting how over 2,000 years ago, all this turmoil in that same part of the world, and then we see it still today, do we not? Very interesting. And again, there is a prophetic element to that. Because first of all, when my wife and I were talking with, about Kevin Sorbo's challenge, what is your favorite Bible prophecy? And we were trying to think of one. I thought of the virgin birth, but that's a difficult one to prove to a skeptic. So we were trying to come up with something where you could actually show hardcore evidence of that fulfillment. And then I thought of the rebirth of the nation of Israel in 1948. 
That's a fact. You can't dispute it. The Bible clearly predicted that that would happen. The blossoming of the fig tree in the last days. The rebirth of the nation Israel. No other nation on the planet has ever gone through what Israel went through, being driven from their land, being dispersed all over the world to the degree that it was no longer called Israel. But what was it called? Palestine. Right, Palestine. Palestine is fake. You've heard of fake news, right? That's a fake country. Never existed. It's a modern take on the ancient word Philistine. Palestine, Philistine, do you see the etymology there? There never was a Palestine. There were never ever Palestinians. Just wandering Arab nomads. Okay? But, again, as we look at the ancient prophecies of Daniel and all that turmoil in that part of the world, the Bible clearly states, first of all, that Israel would become a nation again. And that secondarily, they would be surrounded with people trying to destroy them What's the mantra that we hear on a regular basis? Death to Israel. Death to the Jews. Push them into the Mediterranean. Destroy them. Wipe them out, right? And again, that's another key indicator that we really are in the last of the last days. Okay, verse 11. The king of the south shall be moved with rage. And go out and fight with him with the king of the north who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. The king of the south at this point is Ptolemy IV, Philopater, 221 to 204 B.C. He was the one driven back by Antiochus III the Great in verse 10. So Ptolemy IV came to meet Antiochus III at the southern borders of Israel, Ptolemy IV was initially successful in delaying the invasion of Antiochus and his army. Uh, verse 12 says he slaughtered many thousands. When he has taken up away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. For the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. That's Antiochus III. He returned with another army, much larger than the first one, and turned back the king of the south, Ptolemy IV. Verse 14, Now, in those times many shall rise up against the king of the south, also violent men of your people, Daniel's people, shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. Many shall rise against the king of the south, Ptolemy IV, ruler over Egypt. So others like Philip V of Macedonia, which was part of Greece, where Alexander came from. Philip V of Macedonia helped Antiochus fight against the king of the south. Ptolemy V now, Epiphanes, 203 to 181 B.C. So, and then he mentions, the angel mentions, violent men of your people. So many Jews also joined Antiochus against Egypt. Violent men who sought to bring God's promises to fulfillment by their own means. Remember the zealots at the time of Jesus? In fact, one of Jesus' disciples was named Simon Zealotes. You remember that? That's because Simon had been a part of that sect called the Zealots. And they were up for 
violent overthrow of the Romans. They were kind of the Antifa of ancient Israel, <laughs> if you will. Or the JLM, Jewish Lives Matter. And they do. And so these guys, some of these guys from Israel joined in the fight. It says they shall exalt themselves, or one translation says rebel. They shall rebel in fulfillment of the vision. The vision of chapter 8, Daniel 8, 12. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. And he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. But it tells us that they shall fall. Perhaps the Jews had hoped to gain independence from both Egypt and Syria by joining the conflict, but their hopes were not brought to fruition. Verse 15, So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound. And that's how they would conquer these ancient cities. One of the amazing things about Masada in Israel, which I've had the privilege of going to several times. How many of you have heard of Masada? Where the Jewish people that fled Jerusalem in 70 A.D. when Titus, the general, brought his Roman hordes in, destroyed the city, destroyed the temple. There was about 100 people who fled to Masada, that fortress, that mountain fortress high on that mountaintop. And what enabled the Romans to eventually... There's a great miniseries, by the way, with um, a guy from Lawrence of Arabia. What was his name? Peter O'Toole. There's a miniseries about Masada that's really quite good, if you can find it. But the way they eventually conquered the people up there, of course, when they got there, they were all dead. They took their own lives rather than being captured by the Romans. But they built these siege ramps, and you can still see the, uh, the remains of those 2,000 years later, how they would stack up the rocks and the rubble and dirt and build these siege ramps so they could just march right up to the top of the mountain. And that was a common practice in ancient times because most of these city-states were fortified, they were walled, and in order to conquer their enemies, they would have to build a siege mound and take a fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. The king of the north, Antiochus III, defeated the Egyptian army at the fortified city of Sidon in 198 B.C. But he who comes against him, verse 16, shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. The glorious land would be what? Israel. At this point, the control of Israel passed then from Egypt to Syria. The Seleucids, Antiochus. Verse 17, he shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do, and he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or before him. Antiochus III's daughter, Cleopatra, not the one you're thinking of, but she is one of the Cleopatra of Anthony and Cleopatra. This Cleopatra is one of her ancestors. She was given in marriage to Ptolemy V, Epiphanes of Egypt, in order to destroy or undermine Egypt. It was, she was a Trojan woman instead of a Trojan horse. But then she turned around and sided with her husband over her father. That's what this verse 17 is all about. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it, 
but she shall not stand with him or before him. So that was a strategy. Now, as you probably know also, in many cases, particularly with royalty and so forth, there was a lot of uh, joining of a prince from one country and a princess from another country in order to make these political alliances to hopefully avoid war. Very common. All over the European monarchy, you've got, you know, uh, Alexandra, the last czar, czar, czarina. She was German. In fact, she was a granddaughter of Queen Victoria. I don't know if you knew that. Alexandra was a granddaughter of Queen Victoria, and she married the Russian czar, Nicholas. And that was so common. In fact, Prince Philip, who passed away recently, before the queen, he was Greek. And he married a British queen, who actually her roots were German too. <laughs> Don't even try to figure it out. Don't even try to figure it out. So, not the Cleopatra of Anthony and Cleopatra, but one of her ancestors. 18, after this he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many, but a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end, and with the reproach removed he shall turn back on him. So Antiochus III annexed the coastlands of Asia Minor and unsuccessfully tried to invade Greece. But a ruler shall bring the reproach against him to an end, and with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. Antiochus did not succeed because a guy named Cornelius Scipio, a commander, was dispatched from Rome to turn Antiochus back. So Antiochus was defeated by the Romans at a place called Magnesia, and 190 B.C. was forced to pay tribute and so he said, well, there's no use crying over spilled milk. And so there's where we get the term milk of magnesia. <laughs> I made that up. That's not historically accurate. But what's funny is a lot of you know what milk of magnesia is. And that's funny. Okay. Last verse for the day. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. So Antiochus III, having failed in his attempt to invade Greece, he returned to his own country in 188. He then mounted a fresh expedition to the east in Luristan, where he died in an attempt to rob a temple at Elmais, Persia in 187 B.C. So Antiochus III the Great had carried on the most vigorous military campaigns of any of Alexander's successors, but his dream of reuniting Alexander's empire under his authority was never realized. And so we'll continue with this next week, but we have a few more verses to go before we get to that true end-of-the-end end scenario. Let's stand. I hope you at least found it interesting. It's a lot to take in. But what I love the most, as I said, what I love the most is the fact that Daniel was able to give such amazingly precise, specific prophecies that secular history now tells us were fulfilled to the T. 
You don't ever have to be embarrassed about your Bible, ashamed of your Bible. Your Bible is the most amazing book ever written because it was written by God. As we go to the Lord in prayer, let's bow our heads. And if you have a prayer request, please raise your hand. Father God, you see each hand. You know what's on each person's heart. We're so thankful, Lord, that you know us inside and out. You know us better than we know ourselves. And Lord, you care about us. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. You're our great physician. So first of all, Lord, we start by lifting up health issues. Lord, we pray for our beloved sister Marjean. Lord, your word says that there's power in the prayer of agreement whenever two or more would agree is touching anything. We agree together for healing. For Marjean, Lord, and for anyone else here today or anyone else that we are connected to that's dealing with the horrifying disease of cancer, we pray for healing in the mighty name of Jesus. Lord, we lift up all other afflictions represented here today, whether it would be arthritis, whether it would be COVID-19, pneumonia, the list goes on and on, Father, but you are bigger, greater, stronger than any and every disease, any and every affliction, any and every injury. Lord, we pray for fractured vertebrae, for strained or torn ligaments, muscles. Lord, broken bones, it's all the same to you. No problem for you. We lift it all up to you. We pray that you would strengthen our faith just like the man whose son was being thrown into the fire by the demonic entity having the epileptic seizures. He told you, Lord, I believe, but strengthen my faith. We pray that you'd strengthen our faith, Lord, enable us to trust you and to believe you for healing, not only physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Father, we pray that you would heal the brokenhearted, bring recovery of sight to the blind, not just physically, but those who are spiritually blind. Lord, we thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness, for your faithfulness. So we pray now, Lord, for physical healing, mental healing, emotional healing, spiritual healing, for deliverance in the mighty name of Jesus. Lord, we pray for relationships that have been broken or damaged, that you would bring healing, restoration, reconciliation, Lord, in marriages, in friendships, in work relationships, neighborhood relationships, whatever area of our life it might be in, Lord. Your word tells us we're to be at peace with all men as much as it's possible on our part to do our best to be at peace with all men. Help us to be those who would be initiators of healing, forgiveness, reconciliation. Lord, just give us your heart of compassion, of tenderness, of mercy. We ask you to go before us and bring healing in those broken relationships in Jesus' name, that marriages the enemy is trying to destroy would be saved, recovered, brought back from the brink of destruction, that the enemy would not win, he would not prevail, that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Thank you that we have the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Finally, Lord, we pray for those who may be struggling economically, that you would help them, encourage them, strengthen them, guide them, direct them, bless them. And Lord, that you would raise up people who have that gift of giving, of compassion, to help those who are struggling and need help. 
Lord, you're our provider. We look to you first and foremost, and we thank you that no matter what's happening around us, we can find the calm in, in the eye of the storm by clinging to you and holding on to you and staying close to you. So we pray for your peace to be poured out upon each one here today, Father. That peace that passes all understanding. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.